We're gathered here tonight on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the First Nations, first storytellers and traditional owners of these lands. We acknowledge that no treaty was ever signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. That this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, may we remember we are guests here. I pay my deep respects to their elders past and present and emerging and extend that respect to elders from communities further afield who we are privileged to learn from if we listen. Good evening. I'm Izzy Robertsor. I'm the artistic director here at the Emerging Writers Festival and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our 2019 program launch. I kind of can't believe how quickly that came around, but it's really wonderful to be joined by you all here tonight. Um, we have a really fantastic lineup of speakers for you, and I will introduce them as we kind of go throughout the night. But before I do, I just wanted to speak a little to some of the themes that they'll be exploring tonight. So within this event, we looked back at the, the question of what it means to be a writer and whether or not people feel comfortable calling themselves one, and if so, when was the moment that they thought, yes, I'm a writer, that's how I identify myself. I'm kind of interested in this label because I think it's one that can sometimes be a bit ivory-towered. It's not something that everyone feels comfortable calling themselves. It's not something everyone feels comfortable to claim. And I guess I want us to talk through that, to interrogate the label itself a little tonight, but I also want to invite everyone here in this room to take on that label if it is something that you're interested in, to think of yourself as storytellers. So that's part of what the Emerging Writers Festival is here for. Um, we used to have the slogan, the festival for writers, and the for was italicized um, because we really drew that out as a point of difference for ourselves, that we were a festival that was not only celebrating and putting writers on stage to talk to an audience of perhaps readers, but very much acknowledging that the people within the room, that the audience were peers and people who had something to say as well. So I hope that this year's program will do that for you as well. Um, yeah, I guess we're gonna get into it. So exciting. <laughs> um, as we go throughout the night, I'll muse a little on the program itself. I wanted to show you the artwork because it's great. So just so that you're all sitting here for the next hour, like really wanting to get your mitts on a copy of this, this is what it looks like. You can have one at the end. <laughs> um, so first up for you, I'm really thrilled to introduce Aisha Trambas, who is an Afro-Greek arts worker based on Wurundjeri and Bundurang lands. She's also our program coordinator. She's probably made of sunshine. She's freaking fantastic. And she's gonna speak to you a little bit uh, about our program tonight. So please welcome her to the stage. Good evening, everyone. It's so beautiful to see so many like glowing faces. I can literally see people beaming at me and it's just beautiful. Um, as Izzy mentioned, thank you for the beautiful introduction. My name's Aisha and I've had the enormous privilege of being the program coordinator here at EWF and attempting to fill the very big shoes of my colleague Lin Yuen, um, who I watched on this very stage at this very time last year. Um, and I'm very pleased to report that I'm as excited 
and also incredulous as last year at the breadth and depth of what our team are about to offer you this year. Before I go any further, I'd also like to acknowledge the land that we work on and that the festival happens across, the land of the Wurundjeri people that we're on now and also to the southeast of the city and further, the lands of the Bunurong people. I pay my humble respects to the elders of both these nations, past, present and future, who continue to carry the stories of this land, of the survival and creativity of First Nations people, even in the face of the threat and violence that settler society continues to inflict. And I urge all of us, if you're a settler here tonight, to pay close attention to Indigenous stories and to lend not just our ears and our eyes for consuming those stories and our words for tokenistic acknowledgements at times like right now, but also our resources, like actual resources and hands for material contributions and tangible support in whatever way that we can. So I've been thinking a lot about bios, um, like Insta bios, Twitter bios, the link is in my bio, there is a link in my bio at the moment. Um, artist bios, like a short enigmatic bio versus like a long-winded highfalutin bio, a collective bio, the bio I submitted for this event. Beyond social media in general, I don't think there's anything that better encapsulates the millennial Yopro obsession with self-curation than the bio. What a succinct vessel to carry all of the contradictions and insecurities that we have around self-definition and career progression, to carry the traces of the awkward stage that this event is named after and that these wonderful four writers are here to talk about tonight. I asked myself, when was the first time I considered myself a programmer? But the honest answer is I really don't consider myself a programmer and yet I'm standing before you in this role and yet it is in my bio. <laughs> At this awkward stage of my life, I change my bio honestly depending on the event and depending on who I think will read it and what those eyes deserve or need to know about me depending on the context. Virginia Woolf, when, problematic fave, um, when asked about advice for young writers, once said, for heaven's sake, publish nothing before you are 30. <laughs> so as a young arts worker, I obviously disagree, working for the Emerging Writers Festival. Despite the ageism, there is something though that attracts me about this sentiment, and I think what it is, is the offering to consider the value of process rather than outcome, the value of honing your craft for yourself in private, allowing yourself the messy, time-consuming task of development before considering putting something into the world. But on the other hand, we also know that without peer exchange, without dialogue, without community, we're bound not to develop anything at all in any professional practice. Here at the Emerging Writers Festival, I really like to think that we can hold both the rapid fire millennial bio phenomenon that updates like biannually from novice to expert and then on to like a different field entirely in a few years. Um, and also Wolf's encouragement to build commitment and self-assuredness before public reception of one's work. What better testing ground for emerging writers of all ages to experiment, perform, listen, exchange, learn, and dare I say, make a few solid mistakes 
than the warm embrace EWF provides each year. For now, what I'm going to share with you is my excitement for the 11 days, 73 events and 22 venues that we invite you to share with us from the 19th to the 29th of June. I hope you'll come visit us in a range of places at our new opening night venue, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in South Bank for an evening of First Nations women speaking truth to power, as they always are. Around the fire again at Footscray Community Arts Centre for Closer to the Moon, which is a celebration of the mystical orb who watches over us and the cycles of transformation that she represents. If you know me personally, you know I forced a moon event into this program this year. Um, I hope you'll see us in our city's local libraries from St Kilda to Dandenong for hands-on workshops in poetry, zine making, historical fiction and more. I hope you'll come visit at Loop, Project Space and Bar just up in the city here for our inaugural EWFX events. It's a performance series, four nights of events produced in collaboration with emerging producers to spotlight the collectives and communities that they serve. I'm really thrilled to present events in collaboration with the Waiting Room Arts Company, Liminal Magazine, ICU and Yasoi Collective. Hot tip, I recommend buying an EWFX pass, which means that you can attend all four of those nights for the price of just three. Um, I hope that you'll join us online for our annual festival exhibition titled Future Truths. Alongside an engaging suite of digital programming led by our fantastic digital producer, Ruby Pivot Marsh. The digital program will be live online after this event. It's just got a short little blurb in the program, so find it online. And you can browse a range of interactive projects with artists from across this continent and also the globe. And because it's 2019 and you cannot do a single thing without one, there will be a podcast. Um, <laughs> In under an hour, as Izzy mentioned, you'll receive this little purple booklet to guide you through all of these events and much more in finer detail. The future may strike you as a looming presence in our thinking across many facets of the program, a concept that we're clearly wrestling with as a species as we continue to decrease our collective lifespan and the longevity of life on Earth itself. Considering our dire political climate, it's very dire. Sometimes it doesn't feel dire when you're in this office five days a week, but it is very, very dire. Um, the resurgence of the populist right, turn out to vote this Saturday, please. The precarity of the livelihoods of so many ordinary folks and the urgency, whether it's falsely conjured or genuine, that so many of us operate within it's really no wonder why we feel these conversa conversations about the future are so necessary. So I hope the events that we have in store encourage reflection on our individual and collective responsibilities, as well as the imperative to be intentional, thoughtful and ethical in our approaches to our crafts, as well as each other, and in imagining something greater. In the words of Adrienne Marie Brown, who I'm silently in love with from across the, the, the globe, it is imagination that gives us borders, gives us superiority, gives us race as an indicator of ability. I often feel I am trapped in someone else's imagination and I must engage my own imagination in order to break free. 
I hope the festival gives you a chance to engage your imagination. It's my absolute pleasure to be part of programming. Thank you all again for being here and I can't wait to hear your feedback on the festival via our audience surveys at the end of June. Have a beautiful night and thank you again. Thank you so much, beautiful Aisha, for giving us that insight into this year's program. I wanted to draw out something that Aisha mentioned with that Virginia Woolf quote, um, which is something that comes up often. We get asked a lot what it means to be emerging, and I will tell you now, I always answer that's largely self-defined. Um, and we also, I guess there's a, there's a Venn diagram, right? of young writers and emerging writers that does intersect quite a lot. But not all emerging writers are young, and we are well aware of this fact. Um, and as part of that, we've got a specific event as part of this year's festival where we wanted to celebrate some of the elders in our community, some people who have seen a bit more than some of the other emerging writers within our community. It's called Radical, and it's looking back at some histories of social movements and having people speak to them. Um, and so I hope that whilst a lot of the program, a lot of the people that engage in this festival are young, that, you know, people are aware that there's space for folks who are older as well. Um, and if that's something that you want to talk to me about, please do also. Um, and equally, Aisha mentioned the podcast. So if you're curious about our programming process, which is always something we're eager to involve people in to show you what goes on behind the scenes of the festival, um, please subscribe to the podcast to hear Aisha in discussion with myself and the rest of our programming team uh, in an episode that we'll release as part of the digital stream when the festival launches on the 19th of June. Now, next up for you, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Kat Clark, who is a writer, artist and Indigenous consultant. Being a proud Wachabullock woman from the Wimmera, Kat gradually developed her craft by combining her skills and knowledge and community engagement, mentoring, music, the arts, screen, and education. Please make her very welcome. Wow. Um, I'd like to say thank you for allowing me to be here. I'd like to thank Emerging Writers Festival as well as the team for um, inviting me to be here and speak tonight for this amazing launch. Um, I've known the guys for a few while, few years now, and so it's been a great, you know, a great journey just to grow and to emerge, as we're saying, I like to say evolve, um, and that we're, we're constantly growing. And I think, you know, we're, we've only got a great, you know, a great sort of outlook and future ahead. So I'd like to first start by my own acknowledgement of country. Um, being an Indigenous woman, or I should, really should say a Wachabalik woman, from the Wimmera, I too am a guest on country here and being away from home. Home is only three hours away, but it still feels like it could be across waters. Um, so I'd first like to start by paying my respects to the Kulin Nation, especially the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong, elders and traditional owners who are both young and old, past and present. I'd like to acknowledge the future generations who are leading in the way and making this city what it is today. They're working to keep our culture alive within our urban environment. And like everyone else here, I'd like us to acknowledge that time, 
that they are making to do this because they don't really have to do it, you know, but they are advocates for their people. And you are as well advocates for everything that you guys are passionate about. And so for traditional owners of this country, you know, it's about respecting that, you know, they don't need to do this, but we do it anyway because we're passionate and we're proud. Um, I would like to also, being a woman from the Wimmera, um, if you're familiar with the Gary Words and Grampians, um, that is home for me. So in turn, I acknowledge my own ancestors and um, your own, as none of us would be here today if it weren't for them making those journeys and starting those footprints that have led us to be here today. Uh, I did have a sort of a presentation sort of set up, but at the same time, um, I've decided to now sort of just open with a poem. So I do apologise to our Auslan who weren't prepared for this. <laughs> Daydreamer, shake those thoughts and feelings free from the tangles of your curls. Let them drift off your shoulders and flow naturally along your curves. Allow the words to drip from the rogue of your lips and stay in the pages. Tattooed beautifully raw, so others may read the depths of your soul and be inspired. You see, when I was born, I was born here in Melbourne, but grew up travelling between towns that led you straight from Ballarat to Dimboola along the Wimmera River. My childhood was the beginning of a desire to learn because, let's be honest, in the 90s, most country towns, including Ballarat, had their fair share of racism. And I was a fighter. I grew up learning to hit first and talk later, because who would believe a black fella? You think you have a thick skin back then, but it wasn't until the kids started teasing me because I didn't know how to spell my name, or I didn't spell my name with an E in the middle of Catherine, and tried to say my parents were the idiots who had got it wrong because they couldn't spell, so I must be just as dumb as them. That's the reality. That stuff sticks with you, especially when they do that and also beat the crap out of you. That confidence of making any social interaction is actually unlikely. It even made me question my own birth certificate. Mum thought I was joking and when she realised I wasn't, her, you know, I wasn't, her and Dad both worked with me each night because, you know, I was obsessed with being called an ABC who didn't who was dumb and illiterate. For those that don't know what ABC is, I'm sure, um, I'm not going to say it today, but I'm sure if you were to find out, you'd be just as appalled. Those first three years of my schooling were traumatising. And so to avoid the pain and beatings, it didn't even matter, you know. It was one of those things where I would look for solace in an imagination. It didn't matter if I had a Maltese granddad that also couldn't read and write, but had been a truck driver for the majority of his life and got along fine without the English language. All they saw was my blackness. One of the things I am thankful for in this time is that it gave me the, the strength to at least imagine. Imagine a better world and imagine a hope where kids like myself could be seen. To a, Avoid it all, I wrote right stories. I could play my own, play on my own or with my brother and we would act them out. 
I was determined to prove them wrong and made sure I read books and practiced writing my name over and over again until it was readable and neat enough. But it didn't stop the bullies from tormenting me and making my life a living hell. Right up until mum moved me to another school and I had cousins that were able to grow up with me. But all then, by then I was already a sort of a bookworm, so you couldn't really get me out of there. <laughs> in 2001 I was in year eight and death was something that was becoming desensitised to. When you're 13 you're on the edge of everything, not old enough to know but not young enough to act like a kid anymore. And death can play a, you know, a part in that, a part in making you see life differently. I was tired of seeing the community I love torn constantly by sorry business and I was sick of fighting girls and boys over the colour of my skin. Counselors weren't helpful back then either and so I began to write poetry to help myself heal. Then with the poetry I'd read them at the funerals so the community could heal too, or at least I hoped. That year of my 13th, I'd lost my grandfather on my father's side. He was the first poem I had written and had read the day of his funeral. Since then, I've done this at nearly every one. And it's become a thing now where it's like in the family now, so it's like Cat, you know, Cat's going to be able to at least say something, you know. And I'm proud of that because in a way that's how my community see me. When I lost my grandparents early and many of our knowledge keepers had passed by this time, I searched that I had searched for them in others to teach the value of wisdom, family, culture and listening. That's how I learned. If you were not listening, then we're not really seeing. And if this is the case, then how can we even begin to retell the stories the old ones speak? How can we even begin to speak for the present and our future? You can't help the life you're born into, but you can make the most out of it and try to understand and make change and amends from past histories. That is why we are all unique and we are all storytellers, some of us better than others. Some of us may not even have the words. By the time I was 17, I found myself faced with friends who had suicided, including family, young and old, Mental health and depression was sinking in where I too began to self-harm. And the only saviour at the time was my brother and music. So along with the poetry, I then adapted and evolved again into songwriting. And this stopped myself from sinking deeper. I had to rebuild confidence in the world and myself. Singing and rapping was one of the expressions that was, you know, was one of the ways that was you know, a form of expressing us group of misfits in a way. You see, death is different for us blackfellas. It doesn't affect one person, family and relatives. It sends a ripple along the grapevine and can affect a number of towns of communities where mobs are affected by just one death because that person who was so connected and known some funerals I couldn't make at that age and throughout my early 20s because of the struggle we all go through in life when we take on certain responsibilities and deal with the struggle of disconnection. From sorry business and living further from community with less visits, I turned to writing to guide me. 
I guess the point of this whole talk is to really encourage you to look beyond your doubts and believe that your story is just as unique and should be heard. Your story and your history and life struggle is a story in itself. Like me, you can turn it into something that makes you a better and much more humbled person. It ages your mind much farther than your reality and body, but it is a way of communicating at the hardest of times. If anything, I have my family, my brother, my sisters and my brothers in community who ground me to this day and the multiple communities to thank for making me take leaps and to continue writing. If it wasn't for them pushing me to see beyond the stereotypical lens that said you weren't good enough because you were black, I probably would not have gone to uni. I probably would not be standing here in front of you right now. You see, the people that I were going to show tonight in the photos that was a part of my presentation, they are the characters of my stories. They are the people I write about. They are, these stories are just as much theirs as they are mine. I don't take agency over them. I write, but I am not a writer. I'm just something, I've, it's just something I've done all my life. You know, tell stories in no matter what form it is, whether it's poetry, non-fiction, or screen, I'm still just telling the stories of what my people share. It means more to me than just words on a paper or to entertain and to get carried away with. Writing is a lifesaver. It's a part of who I am and it is a spiritual practice for me. People aren't sure how to interpret that, but it is what it is. I'm no different to anyone else. I am determined, I am passionate, and I love my culture. And I wouldn't change a thing. I am many things for I write, do art, act, sing, I curate exhibitions. But at the end of the day, if anything, I'm just me. A black fella who is trying to understand this crazy world as much as all of you are and seek ways that are different from our usual and outside the norm to express that. I follow my culture and seek guidance from the elders and trust that every day in every way I'm always getting better because I know we are constantly learning and I'm not finished proving to the world that blackfellas are more than just what you think we are. I believe that in order to be a writer, you need to first start understanding who you are as a person even to be able to write it. Some people don't know how to write their stories down and I think that's something where, you know, we find it seems to be the most daunting thing. I've got so much to say but I don't know how the words to actually say it. And I feel that's where we come in, you know. We come in to just give that guiding hand. We come in to be able to shower some words. We come in to at least share and express a connection that we understand. And I hope tonight that's what you see in all of us and us writers and in yourselves tonight, that you've all got a story to tell. And whether you don't have the words or not, it's just about finding a space where you can actually get a chance to say, okay, what is it that I really do want to say? 
You know, who am I really speaking to? Is it something that I can say? Do I need someone else to do it for me? Like my grandfather, who can't read and write. You know, I write for him. I write for people who need it and I write it for people who can connect with me but I also write because it's a lifesaver. Because it's my life and I should cherish every moment Take my sorrows and throw it away yeah. As time goes by I remember the words you said to me, and I see the light, and I fade away, yeah. That song will always be remaining with me. It's called Fade Away. It was written by a brother boy who suicided, and it's something that I had wrote with him. And it's one thing that keeps me strong, it keeps me going, but it's a reminder that I'm here and I'm making a difference, and that's all that matters, is you're here, you're making a difference. So I hope, again, tonight that you do find within all of us tonight a little bit of yourselves, and that you get inspired to be able to share your own stories. Thank you for having me tonight. Thank you, Kat, and for reminding us of the connecting power that storytelling can have and that when we talk about literature, we mean storytelling in a much broader sense as well. Kat will be appearing in Bogong Spoken Word, Blacktivism, presented in partnership with Black and Bright Victorian Indigenous Literary Festival on Monday the 24th of June, 9pm at Loop. And she'll also be reading at this year's Amazing Babes, which is on Tuesday, the 25th of June, 7 p.m. at Melbourne Spiegel Tent. I keep telling you things that are in the program and you don't have a copy yet. So I hope you can all remember what I've said. There will be a test at the end. And now I'm pleased to introduce you to Samudu Samarawikrama, who is from Werribee. Her work has appeared in Boston Review, like, wow. Overland, Mianjin, and The Lifted Brow, also like, wow. <laughs> she has co-produced Sidekicked, which won 2017 Melbourne Fringe Category Award, Best Ideas, Words and Ideas, really mangled that words and ideas bit. <laughs> She's fascinated with the structures that underpin our society and how to use art to powerfully change the status quo. As part of FCAC's West Writers Group, she's interested in how anger can be a tool toward community. Please make her very welcome. Um, thank you very much, EWF, for the opportunity to do this. And thank you very much, Kat Clark, for that beautiful opening. Um, so, when did I first know I was a writer? Um, I knew it when I realised I was lying. So, <laughs> um, on a visit to Sri Lanka, when I was five years old, I told my aunts that back in Zambia, we lived in a house with a dolphin pool. 
Not a pool shaped like a dolphin, but a pool full of dolphins. <laughs> and that I had trained these dolphins to jump through hoops of bright pink bougainvillea. The next day, um, Ditinenda, she asked me whether I was telling the truth. And I hotly affirmed the truth of the story. Though I knew the story had no basis in fact. We didn't even own a pool. Though there was a hedge of bright pink bougainvillea and I had been watching Flipper on TV. <laughs> Later that same year in school, a friend of mine told me that she had a whole family of tiny little people who lived at her house in the 70s glass fitting, the light fitting in their front room, and that they um, flew propeller planes um, around the house. I asked her whether um, she would give me some to keep. And um, as the weeks went on and no tiny little people appeared, I realized she was telling the truth in the same way that I had told the truth. <laughs> Months after I had stopped asking her even for those tiny little people, um, I would still think about them flying around her house in the mornings and landing at the breakfast table um, where they would eat the crumbs from her plate. There's a power in that. There is a truth in that. It was around this time of my life when I started to realize the world outside of my own self. Um, and I would spend hours, I feel like it was hours, it probably wasn't, watching the clouds. Um, looking up at the clouds of Zambia um, at their daily majesty, this weird, unlocalized ache would rise in me. I would imagine flying up into the stratosphere and bouncing on the fluffy cumulus or darting in around the massive nimbus, gray and rippling, you know. I would imagine a different circumstance of birth, um, one where I was a creature of the air and not the earth. And all this lying, all this early writing was never actually written down. But it was taking the world and imagining a different set of rules for it. Or it was imagining a different circumstance with the same set of rules. There was always a moment inside the making when I was sure I was making something. And there was always a moment after when I was unsure what I had done. If this was a narrative, it would lead you to believe that this was something I grew out of. <laughs> when we moved to Australia, I spent the first few years here deeply unhappy. So I wrote a lot in my journals. <laughs> um, mostly, you know, looking back, I was writing as a performance. Um, because I was wondering how and what it would feel like if someone ever read my work. There is something about being a migrant that demands that you become a writer, if of nothing else but then your identity. You know, it took me only two months to gain an Australian accent, to learn to say textures instead of felt-tip pens. Writing in those teenage journals was similar. Australia and adolescence um, had made me insecure about my place in the English canon um, in the Commonwealth. 14-year-old um, me, you know, would read Somerset Maugham 
<laughs> and Hemingway. <laughs> um, Aldous Huxley, like, um, you know, and Daphne du Maurier. So to this day, you know, I'm still waiting for some, like, old guy with a huge house to come and, like, sweep me away. Um, and I tried to write like them. I know now that that little girl, um, she was trying to be white, you know. She was trying to write into herself um, what was properly Western and trying to cover up what wasn't. I am beyond relieved to find now that she failed. Um, but at the same time, I have to admit that a lot of the work that she was, um, the, a lot of the work of cover-up, you know, that was done for her. Um, and it was done without her even realising. But even then, engaging in the most ambitious project of fiction, I never really felt like a writer away from the actual writing. In high school, um, an assignment I had for literature was to write a creative response to Cloud Street, that myth of the white Australia. In my story, I had an elderly dying quick watching his young grandchildren playing under the sprinkler and remembering the time he fished a drowned child out of the river. I wrote the line, Quick knew the pain was on credit. He'd pay for it later. And every time I read that line, a peculiar thrill would run through me. With that line, I felt on level with Winton and I knew he was a writer. But distanced from the making of that line, I didn't know what it meant. Two years ago, a poem came to me as if it was inevitable. Each line was opening the door onto the next. As I sat there and caught each collection of words, I felt that intangible ache inside me again. W.S. Merwin's collection, The Lice, was open in front of me, and I felt for those minutes finally connected to something. But in the months that followed, all I felt was an insecurity that such an outpouring would never again happen. Related to that insecurity is the story of, is the short story I spent 13 months writing, deliberating its language, its plots, its characters, eking out the bones, the flesh, and the clothes for it. When I finished, you know, figurative sweat on my brow, I knew the solid release of making something and making something hard and making that thing work. What I'm trying to say is that I feel like a writer for the first time every time I write something. It seems to be a point of regeneration, a newness that is always present. It comes with doubt and insecurity, but it also comes with an openness and a wonder. As an emerging writer, I feel that there is a strength in this state of dynamic stasis. I can still look at each piece of hard-won writing as the pinnacle, and I can forget that each time I have to make the climb anew. When does a writer feel like a writer? What kind of writer feels like a writer? What does a feeling, what does feeling like a writer feel like? 
What other real-world circumstances contribute to a person feeling like a writer? I hope I'm always asking myself these questions. As an emerging writer, unsettled on this stolen land, I see the privilege of feeling like a writer, of having the English that I have, the access that I have. I watch myself and I listen to remember the power of story and the power of the storyteller. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Samudu. Um, I'm going to share something which is quite silly, but related to dolphins. Um, <laughs> folks in this room may or may not know that uh, I'm a writer myself. Um, and as part of that, I, I used to do a lot of spoken word in my ever so slightly younger years than now. Um, and once upon a time, I wrote a poem for someone I loved very dearly. And the highest esteem of the way that I wanted to tell them that I loved them was, I have to do the serious part. <laughs> I want to give you a dolphin army for your birthday. <laughs> and then it continued. <clears throat> Uh, so yeah, dolphins, amazing, important part of storytelling. Uh, Samudu so is featuring at a number of events as part of the festival, uh, one of which is Lunchtime Lit Reading Poetry 101. Uh, this event is very much about trying to, you know, break down the idea that poetry is elitist and only for certain people to engage with. So we've got some freaking amazing poets uh, on that. Samudu so will be hosting. Tay Tibble is coming over from Aotearoa, and Ray White is coming down from Queensland, so that's going to be sick. Um, and that'll be at Reading State Library. Uh, she's also hosting Double Booked Club right here on this stage. Uh, we're doing a special edition with the Wheeler Centre on Friday the 28th of June, and she'll be in conversation with Jamie Marina Lau and Sridevi Iyer, so that's really great too. Thank you, Samudu. <laughs> and now I'm going to introduce to you Ahmed Yusuf who is a writer and a journalist. I like that. See, you've got it straight up in your bio. No doubts. <laughs> he co-edited Growing Up African in Australia, which I highly encourage you to get your hands on a copy of, the first non-fiction anthology of As African diaspora stories in Australia. His work has featured in Acclaim magazine, The Guardian, TRT World, and Jalada Africa. He was also an artist in the 2018 Digital Writers Festival. Please make him very welcome. Professional speech sounding, you know, drink a glass of water, have a cough. Um, can I just say, I, I, if I'm just going to be in with dolphins, they are evil. <laughs> I, hope, I hope everyone has seen that um, Simpsons episode where dolphins take over, the apocalypse happens, and we all die. Um, okay. <laughs> It is very hard for me to consider myself a writer, despite my bio. <laughs> it is something I struggle to call myself outside of a Twitter bio. It feels strangely boastful. Maybe that's because I never really thought I'd be a writer. I wasn't particularly good at writing when I was at school. I wasn't even a good reader. 
probably read about one book cover to cover in my 13 years of schooling. <laughs> it was 1984. <laughs> Very bleak. Um, I'm pretty sure if my grade six teacher was in, in the audience right now, she'd be, so, she'd be shocked to see me standing in front of you all tonight. Hi, Ms. Nedrin, are you here? Uh, I guess she's not. So when I hear other writers say, I just used to snuggle in the library like it was my second home. <laughs> we'll talk about all the books they, they, uh, from their childhood that, and they have, uh, I get this sinking feeling, am I an imposter? It just races through my head um, because I don't remember reading these child-defining, childhood-defining books. It wasn't a book, it was a teacher. That opened me to the possibility of being a writer. My, uh, my humanities teacher, Mr. Hassan, would compliment my vocabulary. It was small but meaningful. He'd make a concerted effort to make me feel like I was actually good at something. I'm not just some quiet kid at the back of the class, but also good with words. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is no one becomes a writer without a teacher. No one becomes anything without a teacher. The teacher can take many different forms. The teacher in this sense is just a catch-all term for someone who believes in you, who sees your self-worth when you don't, especially when you don't. I cannot express how meaningful those comments were to me. It allowed me to believe in myself, that I could actually do something. Carry on the theme of teachers. My teachers now are the writers I adore. They're Ocean Vong, Claudia Rankin, Watson Shire, Tanasi Coates, Cheryl Olds, Podrick Otuma. And these are just the cliff notes. So yes, I did start reading after school. <laughs> um, the lessons I learned from them make me feel like I'm on my way to being a writer. To find the language to express my writing through Claudia Rankin. To learn how to explore honesty and vulnerability through Padraig Otuma. And to be grounded by the integrity Tanasi Coates outlines in his work. If not for Claudia Rankin's collections, uh, Don't Let Me Be Lonely and Citizen, I wouldn't have been able to write my story in Grand African Australia. As I said, she gave me the language to express myself. To be able to write about the body to describe it, to define it, to evoke its importance. It was almost as if, before reading her work, I was only half present. I was meandering without any sense of direction. I was operating with old software in need of a dire update. <laughs> to read something so nourishing and then to be able to put into practice elements of that language I learned, it made me feel like I wasn't some bluffer. My story wasn't only being accepted because I co-edited the book. It made me feel like I belonged. I'm going to read a section of a poem from Citizen, but please everyone, if you enjoy your life, and I say this very <laughs> seriously, buy Claudia Rankin's work. She is incredible. When you lay your body in the body, entered as if skin and bone were public places, when you lay your body in the body, entered as if you're the ground you walk on. You know no memory should live in these memories, becoming the body of you. 
in all the writing I try to do, I'm trying to better understand myself and the world around me, to explore, to find answers to questions I have or wrestle with the unanswerable. I remember first reading Podrick O'Tuma's collection, reading from the Book of Exile. I couldn't put the book down. It was so raw and vulnerable and unafraid. I want to read this from, from him because it taught me a valuable lesson about meaning-making and writing. It's called Narrative uh, Theology. And I said to him, are there answers to all of this? And he said, the answer is in the story. And the story is being told. And I said, there's so much pain. And she answered plainly, pain will happen. And I said, will I ever find meaning? And they said, you will find meaning when you give meaning. The answer is in the story, and the story isn't finished. I um, also learned something so important when I read Tanasi Coates' We Were Eight Years in Power. He spelled every stupid notion writing some sort of romantic pursuit. In the notes sections, it showed the working out, the labor, the grind. It showed us the behind the scenes of what it goes into making these tremendous works. But more importantly, it taught me what not to be. And this is ultimately what I've come to believe good art, by extension, good writing does. This is, uh, this is a quote from the book that illustrates this so beautifully. Art was not an after-school special. Art was not motivational speaking. Art was not sentimental. You had no responsibility to be hopeful or optimistic or make anyone feel better about the world. It must reflect the world in all its brutality and beauty, not bring hopes of changing it, but the mean and selfish desire to be enrolled, to not to be enrolled in its lie, to not be co-opted by television dreams, to not ignore the great crimes all around us. And another reason why I feel strange about calling myself a writer is because it's in, for me, I think it's an inherently selfish pursuit. What does a room of maybe a hundred people need to hear from me? And what is so important about my take or my work or any of it? When I was writing this speech, I was sitting at home thinking, what do I have to say about being a writer? And why would anyone listen to me? But clearly as I stand here, reading from this piece of paper, I was full enough of myself to <laughs> have decided maybe there are people who might be interested. Um, yeah, but the notion of your voice being unique or special, and I've decided to do all of this, I think it needs to be called for what it is. So that, and I think when that happens, better writing will come out of that recognition. Because who gets to think that? Some might say, well, no, writing was my calling since I was young. You know, I used to snuggle around the library and read for hours. Even that very line is set in luxury. To have that comfort and space to have a calling. To imagine yourself in this space, I could never. 
I don't think aged care or family daycare were callings for my mother. They were jobs, a means to an end. But the notion of access is at the heart of why the Lurie space is the way it is. It is no wonder the good people at Liminal Magazine found the paucity of First Nation writers and writers of colour in their study into publishing in Australia. What kind of access do people have to writing, to art? If I was to hop, in my, hop into my TARDIS and get back in time to my school in Brometos, I told everyone in my class, I'm going to be a writer. They would all laugh in my face. I don't think that happens at your Xavier colleges. So maybe that's why I don't quite feel like a writer. Because Borromeo is one of the poorest suburbs in Victoria. The space doesn't lend itself with luxury. It doesn't have the space to have a calling as unsustainable as writing. But nonetheless, I'm here. Thank you. beautiful thank you Ahmed and a lot to think about too especially in relation to I think always and a festival is a particularly important space I feel to have these conversations about who is speaking and to whom and what are the ways they're doing it uh, you'll be able to see Ahmed hosting a panel discussion as part of this year's National Writers Conference which is the perfect space to have those sorts of discussions he'll be hosting writing new masculinities which I'm particularly excited about uh, it's on the Sunday uh, at the National Writers' Conference, which will be at State Library Victoria in the Conference Centre. I'm now thrilled to introduce you to our final speaker for this evening, uh, Vidya Rajan, who is an award-winning writer, comic and performance maker, working across stage, screen and page. She's trained and performed extensively in improvisation and sketch in Australia and the United States. She's recently worked with Queensland Poetry Festival, Melbourne Festival Directors Lab, ABC Comedy, Theatre Works, and is a 2018 recipient of Screen Australians, Australia's Developing the Developer Initiative. She's a current writer in residence at the Malthouse Theatre. Please make her very welcome. Hi, everyone. Um, hope you're having as amazing a night as I am. Um, and thank you, Izzy, for that introduction. So, uh, as Izzy said, my name is Vidya Rajan and I am a writer and performer. But I work in quite different art forms from the other speakers on the lineup today. Um, these wonderful writers of the high arts of poetry and prose and all the sublime stuff in between. Um, unlike them, I write for and work mainly in the gremlin art forms of <laughs> theatre and television. Um, <laughs> and the writers in those fields are a little bit different from the beautiful dolphinesque creatures we have just experienced. <laughs> TV and, and theatre are fields of work that are best suited to writers who um, do not have the emotional capacity to actually be alone with their thoughts. <laughs> Uh, who require the constant validation of large groups of people <coughs> uh, and who have no patience for anything that doesn't resemble immediate, preferably positive feedback. 
I'm trying to admit that I was craving an applause break there, but it's okay, it's okay. Even I can recognize that it's too early and completely undeserving. Um, now look, if the kind of person, if the kind of writer I've just described just then seems to you pretty horrible um, and like some kind of malfunctional, high-octane idiot, um, I'm really hoping that in the next 10 minutes we share together, I can take that impression and just probably cement it, cement it further. Um, I'm not going to lie, I don't want to start this relationship with a lie, that's probably what's going to happen. I do want to say though, before going further, what a tremendous delight it is to be on this stage tonight. I do want to say that. Um, I, I, I do I want to say that. I do want to say that, but I can't because it would be lying. Um, and it's only lying because delight, tremendous otherwise, is not the dominant emotion I am experiencing right now. <laughs> Instead, it's, um, how do I say this? Fear? Uh, yeah, fear. Um, don't get me wrong, it's not fear of speaking to all of you here today. Uh, you all seem very friendly. I'm not afraid of you. Uh, there was a woman I saw coming in who was wearing a, like, one of those Gertrude Street sack dresses um, with the resin necklace and she had like silver hair. Um, it was very intimidating. Like she looked like one of those older women who are crossed between like an art curator and a bird and could kill you at any moment. Um, yeah, so I am afraid of her, ma'am, wherever you are. Um, please adopt me, I want to be you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So apart from her, though, all of you, no fear there. Um, the fear that I'm speaking about, though, is my fear that by doing this incredibly public event at the launch of the Emerging Writers Festival, everyone will know that in the year of our Lord, Janelle Monáe 2019, <laughs> I was an emerging writer. Specifically, funding bodies will be able to date this point in the year of our Lord, Lupita Nyong'o 2019, to me being an emerging writer. See, funding bodies, in my field of work at least, define an emerging writer as someone who is in the first five years of their practice. And the clock on that starts when you've had an outcome like a publication or a performance in an established venue, or if your peers recognize you in an established venue, like, you know, the Wheeler Center. It's terrifying because, you see, past the warm, gooey, placental embrace that is emerging lies the mid-career. <laughs> Who amongst us has not seen a mid-career artist? You may recognise them from their chapped lips, from their time in the desert, sunken eyes, feral growls, a whiff of the apocalypse about them. I watched Mad Max Fury Road this week again, so maybe that's sort of seeped into that. Um, but from what I hear, it's all a bit grim. You know, the grants die up, sense of cultural relevance out the window, prizes and opportunities too. Um, and I swear I wrote this bit before the whole Vogel Prize thing. So this is not shade, but also why not? Um, <laughs> but yes, that's why it's kind of scary to stand here right now and affirm and have it evidenced in digital proof, because I think this is being recorded, that I am emerging, that I'm quite emerged, that I have maybe, what, two, 2.5, 2 
2.8. You know what, we're amongst friends three years. Three years more before that sweet emerging support dies out. But look, this isn't all about money. It's also about good looks. Um, by which I mean, <laughs> our culture loves youth. Uh, it loves the new and the novel, the just beginning, the next brilliant thing. You're safe if you're emerging because you're shiny. And thus, it's only a matter of time before I too must careen towards cultural irrelevance. And like Gandalf and Frodo and so many elves before me, I must leave Middle Earth and fade into the grey havens. <laughs> I also watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy this week. <laughs> Look, it's been a time, but my life is full and rich and busy and I have lots of friends and stuff. Anyway, in talking about all this, um, I am reminded uh, of what a wise caption on an 18-year-old skincare influencer's Instagram account <laughs> once said to me. Don't be afraid. Be free. Cleanse deeper. <laughs> and she's so right. I don't enjoy this fearful impulse, and I would quite like to be free of it. When EWF sent us the brief for this event, they asked us to think about when we felt emerging, when we first defined ourselves as a writer, not when that was done for us. They asked us to cleanse deeper, if you will. And if you won't, it's okay, I just did it anyway. So in, in responding to this brief, in truly flushing out my pores and my memories, I realised something that I'd actually sort of forgotten, that this self-definition of being a writer, of emerging, was actually something that happened quite early for me. Um, I was a slightly odd child, Kel surprise, um, <laughs> who spent a lot of time... <laughs> you don't have to laugh that hard. Who spent a lot of time... <laughs> moving cities and, you know, being alone. Actually, that whole inability to be alone with your thoughts now making a lot more sense. I can connect the dots. Note to self, bring it up in your session on Monday. All right. Um, yeah, so being alone. There wasn't much to do except make things up. And I remember the first thing I ever wrote. Um, with characteristic megalomania, I took a universally loved uh, cultural product and proposed an alternative to it. This was the alphabet song. You know how it goes, W, X, Y, and Z. Now I've said my ABCs, next time won't you sing with me? I decided to rewrite it to <coughs> W, X, Y, Z. So some early postmodernist sensibilities there, really breaking the form. <laughs> w, X, Y, Z, I have said the alphabet, now it's time to go to bed. And I know that I did this because I grabbed my nearest parent and forced them to write it down. I couldn't actually write at that point physically. Um, and it was a quick giddy descent slash ascent from then to writing my first series of books, a collection of nursery rhymes that consisted of rewriting existing rhymes and also some original compositions. An incisive critical act of pastiche. Quick uh, other note, uh, just a short note for any cute single funding bodies listening at home. These books uh, were self-published by a four-year-old stapling papers together um, and so do not constitute an outcome for the purpose of emerging and early career funding. <laughs> so back off, guys. <laughs> 
Once I'd done my time in the naive poetry movement, though, uh, I progressed to other types of writing. Um, I wrote almost constantly growing up, high on the feeling that I was remaking the world or making new worlds, and completely unquestioning of the fact that I was a writer. Um, I felt no need to emerge. I don't think I even knew what that was. Now, I don't know where this urge to remake the world came from, but I know that it feels like the opposite of fear. Like great, blemishless, healthy, glowing skin, it is its own kind of freedom. But when do we start to lose this? How does this start to change? Through the lack of a daily moisturising routine, yes. <laughs> but also, I think, through merely existing in the world. Somewhere along the line, it became harder to say with confidence that I was a writer or that I was emerging as one or that I could emerge of my own accord. And then when the world finally sort of labels you as emerging through, I guess, opportunities like this, um, it did become easier to say that, but I don't know if it still feels like that freedom that I experienced. I guess, like anything, when you're fixed by the gaze of others, there's a risk that what you've achieved may disappear at any moment. It's not a sustainable state. And I can't help but feel that a lot of people feel like this. Uh, we talk about it all the time in the community. Um, many of us have this sense that it takes a lot to work up to the definition of emerging. There are barriers we experience. And then once we're there, there's also a fear of loss, that that definition is unstable. And no matter how hard won, what lies next? It's quite difficult. I constantly wonder about what factors cause this sort of feeling, this anxiety. Um, I think some of them are personal, but also a lot of them are political and apply to a lot of us. Um, in a culture that loves youth and endless novelty, um, that's just another way of saying it's a culture that loves privilege. And privilege makes cucks of us all in the end. Uh, so I thought I could wind up maybe, you know, by talking a little bit about how I think these reasons are worth investigating. Um, why, why does it feel so hard to emerge? And why does it feel so difficult once we're there and so anxious? And I'm going to venture just a few reasons now, um, some of which uh, are probably applicable to a lot of us, and some of which, you know, might just be idiosyncratic. Um, none of it's definitive. Please don't take it to heart. Um, I don't want to be cancelled. <laughs> All right, so I guess I'm talking about things like never seeing anyone uh, in spaces, establishment spaces who look like you, not hearing voices like yours, so not daring to speak, watching the first season of Riverdale, and thinking, was this show written by a Tumblr algorithm? <laughs> and if so, what is the point of what I do? Should I just give up? But I can't. I can't stop watching. Put it in my veins. <laughs> I'm talking about things like having to earn a living or becoming a carer in your 20s and still having to earn a living or having an illness and having to earn a living or things like watching the second season of Riverdale. <laughs> because you can't stop now. That jingle jangle is so good. 
and because the Twitter hate-watching parties are really addictive, and you're just watching and watching, and you're wondering how much time you are spending on this terrible show, and why you keep doing it when it makes you feel like you can never leave your bed. Oh God, when was the last time I actually emerged from my room with any piece of writing? What has Archie Andrews done again? He is such a stupid, yes, no, no, no. He is such a stupid piece of shit. I would personally like to see all the serpents stand in a circle and piss on him. <laughs> I'm talking about things like the way institutions prioritise the narrow taste of troglodyte gatekeepers rather than investing in communities or the worth of individual achievements over shared cultural making. I'm talking about things like buying into capitalist versions of ourselves that require us to be endlessly productive and super brandable and coherent in our vision so that by the time you get to mi mid-career, you have something, anything, please anything, oh God, to show for it. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> um, in all sincerity though, dropping the veil of irony that is the curse of my generation and eating us from the inside out for just one second, Spaces like uh, EWF are a treasure. Um, the openness with which they platform people is really something amazing to me. Um, never once have they asked us to define emerging or writer. It's up to us to define what culture should be like. And I am truly delighted to be here and to get into the program. And I am truly delighted that I have made the decision to refuse to watch the third season of Riverdale. <laughs> At some point, I guess you need to choose to remake the world the way you want to, whether that's through writing or just by saying, it's okay if I don't know if it was a griffin or a gargoyle. It's okay if I don't know who the gargoyle king is. It's fine, it's fine, I'm not missing out. I can just read the recap. Thank you. <laughs> Frankly, I'm just furious that you didn't share this skincare knowledge before we came on stage when I was asking you about how to use concealer. Like, Jesus. <laughs> Video will be hosting Hysterical, um, unsurprisingly, a night of comedic brilliance featuring a lineup of badass women and non-binary babes uh, on Thursday the 27th at Brunswick Mechanics Institute. Thank you. <laughs> um, and now it's time for the thank yous part of the evening. Um, there are a lot, so buckle in. <laughs> Thank you firstly to all of our wonderful speakers this evening. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> now, as I'm sure you know, this festival is nothing without its people. So huge thanks to our brilliant team for holding it all together. Aisha, Nicole, Mia, Ruby and Lynn to our 2019 creative producers, DM, Jim, Kirby, Latifa, and Lauren, and especially to our brilliant new executive director, Alice Muling, who stepped in about two months ago and has just hit the ground running. <laughs> yeah, give her a round of applause too. Thank you to our board for supporting our vision and us. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre for having us and making this event just a beautiful breeze. Thank you to our fantastic Auslan interpreters, Thank you.
thank you to our major partners, Creative Vic, City of Melbourne, Catalyst, there's a lot of them, Monash University, the Wheeler Centre, Hachette, and the Saturday Paper. Thank you to our education partners, RMIT, Vic Uni, Swinburne. Thank you all for investing in emerging storytellers. And thank you all for making a tax-deductible donation to the festival. <laughs> yeah, but seriously though, um, making good art costs money and for us a little bit goes a long way. So I know it's a terrible joke, but over half the gorgeous program you're about to receive at the back is free. And in order to do that, it's really helpful for us if you have any spare dosh um, to throw it our way. And part of that is just making sure that we keep the paid events low or free so that practicing writers and folks who want to be there and learning how to tell their story um, can get into it. So there's details in the program about how to do that. So tonight, you got a bit of a taste of that program. I hope you enjoyed that taste. I personally thought it was delicious. Um, and I don't know if we've fully answered the question of what it means, you know, exactly what it is that makes a writer, but we had some damn good answers to that question. I loved that throughout these speakers we had this question of emergence as well, and what I hope emerging means is something that we continue to do through our practice, that we see writing and storytelling as a process of becoming, of learning, and that the festival is the space you'll all feel comfortable to come and do that with us. We're really proud of this year's program and we hope you enjoy participating in it as much as we enjoyed putting it together. This year's artwork is thanks to Ellen Matilda and the design is by our favourite Matthias at Loop Studio. Tickets are now officially on sale through the website. And if you're looking to save some dosh um, but you want to go to all the things, consider getting a golden ticket or one of the passes. We, we listened, we added them onto the website this year so if you're a diehard fan you can save some money. Grab a copy of the program on your way out the door and please join us downstairs for a celebratory tipple at the moat. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.